Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, how did you sleep last night? You might be somebody who sleeps soundly every night or one who tosses and turns until the early hours. But author of How to Sleep Well, The Science of Sleeping Smarter, Living Better and Being Productive will have something for you to learn about getting your Z's. And you might have seen champion boxer Eric Donovan in the ring. He has a string of medals at national and European level or more recently as a pundit on Orti's coverage of the Olympics. But today he joins me to talk about his podcast Hooked on Health and how his own journey back from rock bottom was the inspiration. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was busy, but good. It has been nice to be working almost full time again and have a routine of sorts. Although doing breakfast television, I do find the early starts quite debilitating. I can get up and watch a sunrise I found during lockdown with some pals on a beach and head back for breakfast. But when a full day of work starts at 6am, I do find the rest of the day I'm almost recovering. And what's worse is my husband took on extra work during lockdown as a delivery driver and he used to get up at five every morning. And for months headed off and I think it was quite physical really what he was doing, loading up vans and then hopping in and out to deliver door to door. And he never seemed to fade the way I do. I'm hoping he hasn't compared the two and noticed because he's playing a blinder on parenting with trips to the beach and into the sea while I'm kind of sitting watching lots of Shit's Creek on Netflix while prepping work for the next day. I do make dinner though. I haven't completely lost leave of my senses just yet. News is quite grim, I find also at the moment. There is a feeling of will this ever end? And now we have scenes of wildfires and the IPCC report on climate change, which heralded a code red for humanity. Yes, I find it terrifying. But actually, my biggest take home from it all was that there is still hope and time to turn it around. And we don't tend to focus on the positive often in life and nearly always in news reports. I wish we could start to turn that tide too. Yes, there are negatives in our world which need attention and discussion, but I just don't think it helps with the human spirit or motivation. And I interviewed the master of the Rotunda Hospital this week, Professor Fergal Malone, about the restrictions on maternity hospitals. And he said that the narrative around the restrictions brought about only to protect mothers, babies and staff who are imperative at keeping this safety, that the narrative has been incorrect, described as harsh and that they are going rogue against public guidelines. I did put to him that most of the rhetoric has come from mothers and their partners who have told stories of struggling through appointments, bad news, miscarriage and giving birth without the usual support system and how difficult that has been. And there was a, a guy who I listened to here on this station talk to Kieran Cudahy about his miscarrying wife and having to leave her at the door in hysterics while he waited for news in the car and people were shopping for flip-flops and beach towels in pennies. And unquestionably, there have been more stories like this throughout the pandemic and not just in maternity hospitals. But restrictions of late have been eased and partners Professor Malone said, aren't rushed out straight out of birth and can be in the Rotunda Hospital for up to five hours a day. 
And he just thought that it was causing more anxiety in pregnant people and their partners than was necessary. And it made me think of how we focus on that negative. And that very day I left work and I was in town getting some lunch and I bumped into a girl that I know and her two week old baby girl. And she'd seen the interview that morning and she'd given birth in the Rotunda Hospital and She said that she had a thoroughly positive experience, that she felt safe and she only had good things to say. Yes, there have been some tough stories and experiences, but mainly because of a pandemic, not because we are moving towards The Handmaid's Tale. But like anyone, and I try not to judge you, who watches that intense series, which I do believe is brilliant. Elizabeth Moss's performance is incredible, but I jumped after episode one. I couldn't sit that contorted with anxiety and sadness as my relief on a Friday night. But even the success of that series shows that negative and drama often entertains us. And maybe we should focus on the positive a little more. It would be far more uplifting. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, prioritising sleep is a pillar of good health, but with so many factors that can disrupt a good night's sleep, it can be hard to get it right all the time. Dr. Neil Stanley is Director of Sleep Science at sleepstation.org and he's author of How to Sleep Well, The Science of Sleeping Smarter, Living Better and Being Productive and he is on the line now. Hello, Neil. How are you? Hello. Good, thank you. As you are a sleep expert, do you sleep well every night? Well, you would expect after 39 years uh, as a sleep expert, I would say yes, wouldn't I? Um, So, yes, I do, actually. Really? You're that strict with it? I mean, things like the pandemic, the heat, mobile phones dragging us into their space every night. That doesn't affect you. You keep your sleep routine down. Yeah, I mean, you know, practice what you preach. Uh, I'm actually the only sleep expert who on their website actually tells you about what I do, what I sleep on, what I sleep in, and uh, my preparations for sleep. Um, And and the thing is that, you know, you have to, uh, you know, consciously do things to help yourself get a good night's sleep. You can't just switch the TV off, have a pee, brush your teeth, flop into bed and expect sleep to magically happen. Wow. I mean, even when you say that, that's exactly what everybody does. That's the routine. You turn off the TV, you head up the stairs, you brush your teeth, you flop into bed. That's not good enough. Absolutely. I mean, you you know, you need to have that quiet mind and that bit that we don't attend to. So if you've just watched The Exorcist on your tablet in bed and you put it to one side, you know, it's no wonder that you're not going to have problems with your sleep. And um, so it's about putting your cares and worries to one side, put them to bed long before you get into bed. Um, And, you know, this is probably the biggest cause of sleep problems is to say we just don't see sleep as important. Or we see it as important, but not that important that we'd be willing to put our mobile phone down or our tablet down. So talk to me about the, the perfect wind down then every evening. Well, you need to be thinking about winding down from about 45 minutes before bed. And so, 
you know, it would be a good idea uh, to potentially uh, do your bedtime routine at that point, brush your teeth, uh, change into your PJs, um, and and do that 45 minutes before, so you're not, you know, you're not doing exercise and, and smelling peppermint toothpaste, which is actually alerting last thing before you go to sleep, and then just do something that quietens your mind. What that is, well, that's down to you. Personally, I read every night, but that might not be right for you, so drink chamomile tea, do yoga, practice mindfulness, listen to Pink Floyd really loudly. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're not worrying about, you know, what what's happened during the day. And as your granny used to say to you, don't go to bed angry. Uh, you know, um, have a quiet, untroubled mind um, and, and uh, say a relaxed body. So have a nice hot bath and, and, you know, soak in a bath and, uh, you know, with your favorite bubbles and candles around the bathtub, um, you know, things like that. It, you know, it, we all know how to relax. We just don't do it. What about the room itself? What's important about it and, and, and where you sleep? Uh, the bed needs to be dark, quiet, cool and comfortable. So dark, even very low levels of light, even the light that you'd get from a couple of candles could potentially disturb your sleep. So blackout blinds, heavy curtains and put gaffer tape over, um, you know, the, your extension uh, lead that you've plugged your phone charger into. Um, quiet, uh, as, as quiet as possible. And that involve, includes moving your snoring partner out of the bedroom because they'll disturb you. Cool, you need to lose body temperature overnight in order to get a good night's sleep. So the bedroom needs to be cool. Um, it can be warm in bed in the winter, but you heat the bed up anyway just by being in it. And comfortable. Uh, if you live to the age of 70, you'll spend 220,000 hours of your life asleep. So your bed really should be quite a uh, significant uh, purchase and should be very very comfortable you'll spend more time in your bed than you'll spend anywhere else in your entire life now you have said a couple of things that have blown my mind a little bit the peppermint toothpaste is one what flavor should your toothpaste be to help you relax well this is well this is the gap in the market if anybody's listening who wants to to make a million then i i don't don't know what um, orange blossom or lavender i mean they're the two smells that help you fall asleep i I would very much uh, advise somebody to uh, make an orange blossom smelling toothpaste (laughs) and also you mentioned a snoring partner so if you have somebody beside you that is disturbing your sleep, are you suggesting separate beds are the, are the way to go? And we should talk about separate this bedrooms. more. Separate bedrooms, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, it, through history, it's only the poor who've ever slept together because uh, we don't have space to sleep separately. Um, and essentially, humans are the only animals that sleep together for intimacy. Other animals may sleep together for warmth or for security, but we choose to do it. And as I said, it should be quiet in your bedroom. The World Health Organization says no louder than 40 decibels. A snore is 65 to 95 decibels. So um, we're not meant to sleep together. Um, and, um, you know, if as you get older and the kids fly the nest and there's some uh, spare uh, 
space, uh, you know, have your own bedroom. It's not the back room. It's not the guest room. It's your bedroom. And you can have cuddles. Uh, and then when you've had cuddles, you can go and have a good undisturbed night's sleep and then come back in the morning happy to see your partner rather than wanting to put the pillow over them and smother them. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting because we would often see it as a, a failing in a relationship if you end up sleeping in separate beds, you're missing out on something. But when... I was looking at at some of the research that you've put out there. If you've had bad sleep, among other things, you're more likely to get into a verbal disagreement with your partner or your family. So you're actually saving the relationship in the long run. Absolutely. People who have poor sleep have a higher rate of divorce. Um, it, you know, In the short term, if you have a bad night's sleep, the next day, as you say, you'll have more arguments, you'll uh, less, have less empathy for your partner, and you'll have less desire to make up with your partner. So, you know, you're going to have an argument and you're going to keep that argument going. Um, and, and, you know, we've been sold a cot. We've been conned into the idea of sleeping together uh, as being the natural thing. This is only a very, very recent phenomenon. Um, it's, it's history can be traced back to Victorian times at the, at the very uh, you know, earliest. And, and, you know, there were big arguments in the women's magazines of the time, right up into the 1950s, uh, as to whether you should be, you know, sleeping separately from your partner. So it's a very modern phenomenon, as I say, the, and it's only, it's a signifier of poverty. The rich have never slept together. You go around any stately home or castle, you'll see the king's bedroom, the queen's bedroom, the lord's bedroom, the lady's bedroom. Um, you only shared a bed for a particular reason that uh, didn't involve sleep. You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk and I'm talking to Dr Neil Stanley about how to get good sleep. I did think watching The Crown and watching the Queen and, and, and Prince Philip going to separate beds, even though they could see each other from each bed, there was something sort of sad about it, but you're making me view it very differently. There are also lots of other implications of bad sleep which I think are very interesting in the short term you're four times more likely to catch a cold your reaction times will be slower you will consume more calories the next day and you're more likely to be involved in a motor vehicle accident what are some of the long-term implications of bad sleep well poor sleep has been implicated in 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 a number of long-term conditions so things like heart disease stroke depression diabetes obesity um, so there's no good about bad sleep. Sleep is the time when the body and the brain repairs and recuperates. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, the, uh, you know, it's when we strengthen our immune system, which is why, as I say, after a poor night's sleep, we're much more likely to catch the common cold and probably other, you know, viral uh, conditions. Um, and, and so, you know, it's about balance. Sleep is about what we call homeostasis, which is balance, essentially. Um, and if you want to keep um, you know, the machine of your body and mind working, you have to have sleep. And if you don't, something will go wrong. It's like, you know, driving a car without putting oil in the car. You can get away with it until something goes catastrophic, <laughs> catastrophically wrong. Um, and so we need to think about getting a good night's sleep each and every night. It's as important as food, water, 
and air. It's a biological necessity. You have to do it, and it's unavoidable. You all did it in the last 24 hours. You'll all do it again in the next 24 hours. However well or poorly you do it, you can't avoid it. Now, it's best you do it in bed, uh, all you know, snugly and comfortable, but if you don't, you'll do it tomorrow morning when you're driving to work or tomorrow afternoon when you're sat in front of the TV. It's going to happen, so you might as well you know, make the best of it. Uh, and as I say, it is the very foundation of good physical, mental and emotional health. What about for the people it doesn't happen for um, long term insomniacs? Do you believe all sleep problems can be fixed? There's, there's, yes, there are very, very few people who have um, what is called idiopathic insomnia. Idiopathic insomnia is the inability to have good sleep, and there is no reason for that. It's just something that's you know built in. It's something genetic. There's very very few people out now. There are many uh, you know sleep disorders. Uh, there are medical conditions like pain or asthma or, or reflux that can disturb sleep. But for the majority of people who have insomnia, there is usually a cause. There's usually a reason for that. Anxiety. Uh, depression, uh, bad habits, you know, not having that wind down, working shifts. Um, these things uh, are, you know, can be dealt with. And, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a talking therapy, uh, it is designed to stop that short-term sleep disturbance that you may have when you change job or move house or your relationship breaks up. It, it, it's designed to, you know, hold that uh, poor sleep in its tracks by teaching you the importance of sleep and what you as an individual can do to help yourself get a better night's sleep. And once you see sleep is important, then you'll do those behaviours that will help you get a good night's sleep. How has sleep been affected by the pandemic? Well, interestingly, um, a proportion of people uh, are actually sleeping vastly better uh, during the pandemic because, um, you know, myself included. I mean, I used to travel uh, the UK and Europe talking about sleep, uh, which meant early mornings and late nights. Now I get up sort of five minutes before I start work and my bedroom is, you know, 10 feet from my office. Um, so and and you know so I'm sleeping better, but for many people the anxiety of the the situation uh, and actually the lack of that routine, um, uh, you know if you if you if you're a commuter who's got up every day at the same time, got the same train to to work, um, you know that lack of routine can you know, potentially affect your sleep. You you know you you don't have to get up early in the morning, so you think well I can binge watch something on Netflix. Uh, you know, just another episode. It doesn't matter because you can get up a bit later. And so, so some people sleep worse, some people sleep better. Um, and, you know, it's going to be interesting when we start returning to normal uh, how that affects people. I mean, some people will just never want to go back to the old way of doing things and others will, will you know, be, be desperate to get back there. How do you know you're getting enough sleep? Will you wake feeling rested? Is it the magic number of eight hours that you have to hit every night? Or should we be using all of these monitors in our watches and on our phones to track our sleep? Um, (laughs) To take those in reverse order, Mm -hmm. uh, trackers uh, on your wrist or on your phone are notoriously inaccurate, so they should not be relied on. 
Um, eight hours is a myth. It's an average. It's not an ideal. So um, some people need a lot less than eight hours to feel good. Others people need more. I personally know after 39 years, I need nine and a half hours of sleep to feel at my best. And you shouldn't really ask yourself how you feel when you wake up. You should ask yourself how you feel uh, at 11 o'clock. And essentially, if you've had a good night's sleep, you'll feel awake, alert, focused during the day. If you feel sleepy, and, and when I say sleepy, I mean you want to lie down and sleep, not that you're just a bit cheesed off with life. Um, but if you are sleepy during the day, you haven't had enough sleep, regardless of the number of hours. Um, if you are, you know, you, if you've had a good sleep, you will wake up and you will be able to function at a very high level during the day. And it's as simple as that. Technology, you, you don't need. You don't need technology to tell you how you feel. You know how you feel. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Author of How to Sleep Well, Dr. Neil Stanley, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Eric Donovan, my next guest, is a pro champion boxer with a keen interest in health, but it wasn't always that way. Eric has battled in and out of the ring, and he joins me in studio now to tell his story and why he's hooked on health. Eric, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Eric, people might recognise you through some punditry you're doing on the Olympics. That's right. Really enjoying it too because uh, the Irish athletes and the Irish boxers are giving us uh, something to really smile and cheer about. So it's wonderful. Because whether you're a sporty or not, you're watching people who had a dream, who had a vision, and now whether they win a medal or not, they're at the mm. top of their game and they're having an incredible experience. I kind of get envy because I'm all about goal setting and dreaming big. Oh, like, I mean, they're absolute heroes, you know, like to qualify for the Olympic Games alone is like, it's an incredible achievement. Like there's only a very, very small, minuscule uh, percentage of the popul- world's population that actually uh, have the pleasure of calling themselves Olympians, you know. So to be in that kind of prestigious group is it's just incredible and phenomenal. But to um to actually go and make a uh, and bring home a medal from the Olympic Games now that's different gravy altogether. They're just absolute legends. But I love it. I I just sit by and watch it. Something magical about it, and it's a lifetime's work. You know, from growing up as young boys, young girls dreaming of one day being in the Olympic Games, and then you're watching them have that chance to be on the stage and shine. You know, it's amazing. I, I, I get very emotional watching it at times. Yeah, me too. And I've liked a lot of the discussion points that have come from it. Um, the interesting sideline discussions like the BMX rider who hit mm. an official during practice who just wandered on, had to go off mm. to have uh, an MRI scan and came back and went on to win gold. Yeah. Or Simone Biles raised a yeah. lot of discussion about mm. how you're still a winner if you go listen, I'm listening to my gut and this isn't right for me and I'm moving on. So it's not just about the performance in the chosen sport. We've had bigger discussions, wider discussions. Absolutely, you know, and even Jack Woolley as well, you know, the Taekwondo representative for for, for Ireland, like to hear his interview at the end, breaking down, getting so emotional, thinking that he's let everybody down when in actual fact, he's raised everybody up. He's given everybody so much joy and pleasure to watch him, to, to watch him shine and inspire people. But like, he just lost out on the most narrowest of margins. And But when you when you see the kind of sport and the discipline that he does and what the, the, the kind of level of um, ability that that takes. And then, of course, Simone Biles, like, you know, being absolutely, I think, anyway, courageous and brave to stand up and to be true to herself and listen to her body and not be told what, and or not follow what other people want you to do, to take control of your own self, of your own mind and of your own body and 
they were obviously her mind and body was obviously telling her something is not right and we should we should be able to um we should be able to respond to that and we should be respected for that not put down or not be called a loser or not be called weak or anything because in actual fact she's a multiple champion you don't get there by being weak you're you're a very res- she's a very resilient individual nobody gets to the level that she gets by being weak so she's not weak but sometimes people have a breaking point we all have breaking points you know and in her case you know she needed to step back and i i have the utmost admiration for her for doing that me too um, you had your own brush with the Olympics. We'll get to 2012 mm. and what happened around then. But let's go back a little bit to your boxing career, mm. if we can. When did boxing first become a part of your life? Oh, very early on. Like, I was only seven years old, young, mischievous, rebellious young kid running around Clamullion in a tie where I grew up. And uh, as a council estate, you know, and um, huge families, very populated area. Uh, a bit chaotic, but very, very fun. And... Um, and and uh, the boxing club was was in the old um, Mount St Mary's old nuns. It was an old nuns hall. There used to be several different clubs going on there. There was scouts. There was Irish dancing. There was lots of different things going on there. So and there was no nuns in boxing club. <laughs> well, the, some of them had a, had a hand and a part. There was actually a priest who helped to open up Father Laverty, who helped to open up the Thai boxing club. So I just ran down, followed my older brothers down because you know it was something to do. And um, my mother was totally against it. She goes, you're too young and boxing's too rough and don't go down there, whatever. But, you know, I, I, I just went in and I remember walking through the door for the very first time. I was just, I was struck by what I saw. Just the, the, the smell, the noise, the atmosphere. And you could just hear the ropes, you know, and the bag, pa, 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 pa. And I was just like, wow, this is unbelievable, you know, because... Education wasn't really at the forte of, of our lives growing up, you know. My mother and my father left school when they were very young. Hard-working people, but education was never... There was no emphasis or importance put onto it. There was no real supports around it. So I really struggled in that area. But in this boxing club, I, I had all this energy and ball of energy inside me that could be directed and channeled into something very, very positive. And that's what it, that, you know, that's what it done for me. It gave me... Boxing was my education, you know. And I excelled at it from a very young age. My coach convinced my mother to allow me to come back down because he saw something. He saw a spark. He saw potential. And he had a very positive impact on my life. And still today, he does have a very positive impact on my life. And um, and I excelled from there on in. And I often wonder, um, martial arts comes under fire, MMA mm. comes under fire, boxing comes mm. under fire. And I think we have incredible role models like Katie Taylor, mm. Kelly Harrington, mm. who are giving it a, a new face and you're seeing it for the skill mm-hmm. that it is. Mm-hmm. But does it encourage violence or does it give you a respect for keeping fighting into the ring? No, it's the absolute opposite of violence. In actual fact, that's why I take my role as a pundit with RT very, very seriously um, because some people, the casual fan or maybe the, the uneducated fan, they look at boxing and just think two people tearing lumps out of each other and it's barbaric and it's vicious and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, to a certain extent in the professional game, it can be like that, you know. But amateur boxing, to me, is a skill. It's a sweet science. It's a noble art. And it's my job to educate and inform people about the skill level here, the discipline. Like, boxing is a, is a great sport for, for confidence, for discipline, for the health aspects and the principles of it too. To be able to take a punch and give a punch and shake someone's hand or, or, or embrace them at the end without having to kind of hold grudges or try and get them outside or get them, you know, uh, 
get them, you know, get them in the back or whatever. Like because there's so much violence uh, nowadays on the streets. We hear of young kids who are carrying knives and stuff like that as well. And even across the UK, it's an epidemic at the moment with knife this knife culture. It's terrible. So I think boxing and mixed martial arts and and all of those uh, sports can help to combat that. You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna and I'm talking to pro-champion boxer Eric Donovan about his career as a boxer and his now career um, as a presenter of a health podcast and studying psychotherapy and counselling. So Eric, before we get down that line, you were channeling all your energy into this Mm -hmm. boxing. Um, You know, you were excelling at a competitive level Mm -hmm. But there was also something else going on. You were still swayed, as many teenagers are, mm. with the party circuit. So mm. how did the two of those work together? It's funny, you know, because from a very young age, like, you know, in the, in the neighbourhood where I grew up, um, I would have started off from playing football, you know, playing uh, rounders, playing playing all sorts of sports, playing uh, tag, uh, you know, etc. From, you know, a young kid right up until, like, I turned 12 or 13. But then... When I hit twelve or thirteen, I know I started to notice different kind of activities in the in the area. You know, smoking and drinking was happening from the older kids that were maybe around fifteen, sixteen, and you know I was always kind of watching them and looking at them and looking looking at what they're doing, and I wanted to kind of be involved. I was a bit like um, I was a very curious young kid. It's not that I like no no kid starts off and says, "Oh, I want to be a drinker or I want to be a smoker when I grow up." It's not like that. It's just that what other people were doing appeared to be cool to me you know so I wanted to get involved um, it always fascinates me we spend most mm. of our younger years mm. wanting to be older and then we spend yeah. most of our older years wanting to be younger <laughs> yeah. what is that all that's about that's true you know I just wanted to be in the alleyways with the other guys you know because it looked cool what they were doing there was laughs and giggles coming from there you know so um, yeah so like I started smoking when I was 12 for the first time and t- took my first taste of alcohol when I was about 13 but even when I s- took my first cigarette it left me green like it really left me on the, on the ground with like uh, pains like real abdominal pains and I was getting sick but it, undeterred left me undeterred <laughs> as well I wanted to you know I wanted to go back for more it's crazy but you know le- but then you know as a young kid I started to kind of um, think that sure like I'm only doing what all my peers are doing you know but I noticed very quickly that something was different about what I was doing. I wanted more. I wanted more high. I wanted, you know, because I took my first ecstasy tablet at 14. And I wanted, I don't. I never wanted the party to stop. You know, I never wanted to come back to reality. And then it was dawned on me that I was different than other people, you know. That I was actually doing this because there was, a, there was emotional turmoil going on for me that I couldn't identify at the time or um, didn't know much about. Uh, and then that obviously is, has a direct link to your mental health, emotional health and mental health. They're, long, they're, they're both very linked, you know. And then um, I just kind of put it off. I, I, I didn't realise this till later on in life, obviously. You know, I'm not a 14-year-old kid thinking this, you know. I'm just doing what everybody else is doing and um, and and trying to... I think I'm having fun. I'm enjoying my life. And this is sure, this is what we do, you know. You keep your secrets from your parents. You keep your secrets from your coaches and everybody else. And you're kind of living two different lives. I was... a Representing Ireland from the age of fourteen to fifteen, captain in Ireland at the European Schoolboy Championships in England at in two thousand and one. I was fifteen years old, won a bronze medal there, and you know came home and you know was back taking ecstasy, and that's how I celebrated ecstasy and and alcohol, and it was crazy because I started to live this parallel life uh, for right up till I was about twenty six years of age, and uh, it was difficult. 
So what happened then? Um, would you call what happened in the lead up to the London Olympics in 2012? Was that your rock bottom? Tell people what happened. Yeah, it's funny because like, you know, some people say, oh, you haven't hit your rock bottom yet, you know. But like I've had some really, really rock bottom experiences, like, you know, probably even several years before 2012, you know, but just kept going back. Didn't know, didn't know any other way, you know. That's the funny thing, you know, because the environment that I grew up in, I didn't know anything outside of that environment. I so you've had times where you felt low. Yeah, yeah, but I felt it was the norm, you know. I felt like, oh, well, this is just the kind of side effects of the life I'm living or whatever. But I knew it was I knew it was wrong what I was doing, but I just did not know that there was an alternative way because I didn't see an alternative way. I, Like I said, I was surrounded by people that were doing the same thing. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll go into 2012, the London Olympic Games. I was probably a, a, a strong candidate to qualify for the London Olympic Games because in 2010, at the European Senior Championships, I won a bronze medal which put me number three in Europe and the top 10 in the world now in 2011 before we went into the qualifiers which would have been seeded you know so I would have avoided I would have got the seed and I would have avoided all the top guns so to speak and I should have had an easy passageway through to the London Olympics but I went out for one last night on the town well I say one last night because that's my thinking you know at the time this is my thinking oh the best intentions I go out for a few hours let the hair down it's a very normal thing to do very you no know, legal thing to do, no, you know, and um, I say for a normal person, but I always seemed to cross the invisible line. Never knew when enough was enough, and uh, so I ended up going out, and people I was with went home, and I kept out and stayed out, and went ended up back in a house party, and within the space of about ten fifteen seconds, I got into a bit of a scuffle with a guy, and I broke my left hand, and not only did I break my left hand, but I also broke. And shattered my Olympic dreams because I shouldn't have been there. When you're when you're training for something like Olympic Games, you know you need to be looking after yourself. You need to be taking right kind of preparation steps and making good decisions. But you know, I just thought I was doing all right, and I thought maybe next week, maybe next week I'll get back on track or whatever. But you know, I I broke my Olympic dreams there, and I shattered the shattered the, my my dreams and. I still couldn't tell the truth to anybody. I made up a big lie about how it happened and, you know, I, I, I said I was celebrating the local GA team success. Thai football team won the, senior, the county championship that year. I remember being at the match the next day, standing in the crowd. My hand was pained the life out of me watching the match and I was fearing, hoping for the best but fearing the worst. And a Thai won. It was a huge celebration and I headed off to the hospital x-rayed and my worst fears were realised and then I told everybody that I was celebrating the ties win jumped over the fence in St Connell's Park and broke my hand and it was absolute nonsense I think everybody else knew I was in denial I couldn't accept it I couldn't I was. I had this fear of what people would think of me it's amazing that you live your life you know wondering how people will perceive you or how people will think of you you know it's a terrible place to live because like in some ways like what about your own self what do you think of yourself you know what do so I had to kind of I had to do a lot of work on myself afterwards and kind of jump into gun a little bit now but I will say that that was a very difficult time in my life it was a rock bottom for me but it wasn't the change it wasn't the uh, intervention episode so to speak but soon after you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk and I'm talking to Eric Donovan. He's a pro champion boxer. He's a sports pundit on RTE and he's also studying psychotherapy and counselling and presents Hooked on Health, a podcast talking about the human spirit and the ability to overcome. And 
there's no surprises as to why you have chosen that as your topic on your podcast, mm. because that's what you have had to do. You were telling us before the break about getting into a fight on a night mm. out, breaking your left hand, dashing mm. your hopes of the 2012 Olympics. So where did you go from there? When when did you realise rehab was going to be the next step for you? Yeah, so that, that that happened. That episode happened in 2011. And funny enough, in early 2012, then it just came to a, another couple of episodes, probably not as extreme as that. But every time I used to go out or any time I picked up a drink or whatever, nine times out of ten, there was always a problem. Might not have been a, like a huge kind of a problem, but it was always internal problems. I was always depressed. I was always... I always seem to have to apologise to somebody. I always seem to regret stuff. I always seem to be really, really low. Like, you know, read it. Like, one night out would affect me for nearly a week or two weeks afterwards, you know, trying to pick myself back up. And see, I had this vision of like a person who's an alcoholic or a person who's an addict is somebody who needs a drink every single day. And I wasn't one of these people. You know, I could go out for a drink and not drink for weeks, you know. But every time I went out, I was a disaster. But so I couldn't link up the board. I couldn't say like I am an alcoholic or I am a, I am I have an issue. And then when I got so low, I got to the point where I didn't really feel like I had a purpose in life anymore. And I actually felt that my mother and the people who loved me, my coach and people who rallied around and tried to do do good things for me, I started to think that they'd be better off without me and that maybe I just am not I'm not for this world, you know, because I didn't think any I didn't think I had a purpose. I thought that I was just burdening people. Um and that was the that was the breaking point for me. I turned to the one person then who who has been there for me all my life from the age of 7 right up to now and that was my coach, my amateur boxing coach, you know, and uh I asked him I I remember muttering the words to him like, you know, I told him I need help and I can't believe I muttered those words up, you know, because I was a champion boxer from the age of 11 in a sport you call boxing, which is synonymous with being tough, brave, macho and all that. So I never felt that I could, or I never thought that I could feel weak or sad or lonely and depressed, you know, because in my opinion, like I, 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 well, what I, what I had taught initially was they were all uh, weak types of emotions or whatever. So, but I knew when I asked them for help, though it wasn't the type of help I was used to asking them for, like holding up the, pads or giving me some boxing instructions and it was a different kind of a help and it was the help that he he probably couldn't provide for me either but he knew some people who could and then he introduced me into the area of counseling psychotherapy health well-being and I, I went into rehab in early 2012 in Wexford and when I think of people at this crossroads mm. it must be a very difficult place to be because Going to rehab, mm. that's not an easy climb either. I mean, carrying mm. on the way you're going isn't easy, but neither is that. Mm. Going in, overhauling your life completely, taking a really hard yeah. look at yourself in the mirror mm. and everything you don't like and picking it apart. I mean, mm. nobody really relishes that. And yet, there's so much power in doing that. Huge power in it. But you're right, not an easy step. Not an easy step because, first of all, I'm already humiliated and embarrassed by breaking my hand, by, you know... My whole my teammates, my peers, the boxing community is a small community. Everybody knows, everybody talks. You know, Eric Donovan is gone, his hand is gone. You know, out there, you know, being ill disciplined, being an absolute mess, you know, and he ruined his chances. And 
you know, the next minute I can't seem to be able to put one foot in front of the next, you know, and I'm I'm heading into a rehab centre and I'm kind of thinking like, where's my life going, you know, where's my, what am I doing, you know? And then, but in that rehab centre, it's amazing. It's almost like, it was called Asheree, okay? It's called Asheree in Wexford, which is, Asheree is termination of a reborn, kind of, you know, it's the Irish uh, termina- uh, phrase, I think. Uh, and it's like a restart. And in there, I couldn't believe it because now I, I present it as an individual who needed help. Most of my life previous to that, I thought I knew everything. I knew everything. People tried to talk to me, but they couldn't get through to me, you know. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 I know I'm grand. Everything is, you know, I had this kind of defense up, you know, this kind of barriers up. Like, you know, I'm grand. I know what I'm doing. I'm well able to handle myself and all. But I wasn't, you know. That was all insecurities, really. And then in there, I kind of presented. And the first time I opened up, I opened up and allowed people to help me. I Because I, I, I knew I was goosed, you know. I knew I needed some support here. And just to even the realization of that, and then words, then words I muttered to my coach, I need help. Because it's very hard to change something you're not aware of. Like, I mean, if you don't accept or acknowledge that you have a problem, you can't do anything about that problem. It's impossible. No matter how many people try to help you, you have to take ownership of it. And then I did. I went in there and I started to learn, Claire. I started to learn about why I was doing the things I was doing. You know, I started to learn about addiction. What What is addiction? You know what I mean? Because really all of the, the, the drink, the drugs, the, that was all just painting over the cracks, you know? So when you stop doing that to yourself, then you have to st- try and start applying a bit of emotional first aid to yourself, you know? Something that is a little bit more therapeutic than alcohol or drugs and, and give yourself that compassion, that empathy, and work with yourself and take care of yourself and go back to that younger child and nurture that child, develop that child, um, give it everything it needs to 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 be strong, to be um to be ambitious, you know, to be to be, to have hope and and move forward. And I came out there like a new man. And I knew that that was only the foundations, really. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm fixed, I'm cured. You know, that my life really started then. You know, I had to kind of take, I had to kind of come out there. I came out of there in early 2012. And it was like, Eric, okay, now you have a chance. You know, I've built a very good foundation in there. Now you have a chance to, to go on now and start a new life for yourself. And I veered off then. I veered off into, I had a Y in the road. And I veered off into... I could go left or I could go right. And one one way was go back to my old habits, old old behaviours, old routines. And the other way was to go into um the road less travelled, you know, um to create this new pathway for yourself. And there was a couple of suggestions. I wasn't just thrown out there, you know, left to kind of fend for myself. I was given a lot of support, a lot of advice and a lot of guidelines about what I should do. And uh and the, the, the suggestions I took on board and I took them very seriously because, f- as I said before, most of my life I never took on board, never listened. But this time I said I was going to listen. I was going to... And it takes humility. That takes humility. It's an act of humility to realise that your way was not good enough or your way wasn't the best way. So now I was taking other people who've been there, who've went down this pathway before and who who have w- worn the T-shirt, basically. And they were suggesting some things to me. And I followed suit and met some wonderful people in the area of recovery 
because I'm a part of a of a community now of people who are in recovery and people who have similar experiences and they're like a support group, a support network. Uh, and, and I have some made some wonderful friends and inspirational people. And they've just kicked on ever since, you know. And now it doesn't mean that my whole life evolves around people who are in recovery. Like I have, I'm, I'm just, I suppose, more self-assured and more kind of set uh, in, in, in my own life. And I'm standing firmly on my own two feet today and not struggling through life. Yeah, you have the tools, mm. you have the resilience, you're still going to get knocks, you're still going to have struggles, mm. but you actually know yourself well mm. enough because you did that work. And I think it's really interesting that you came out of there in 2012. Mm. So yes, you didn't get an Olympic medal, but what an incredible mm. achievement that you went in there and you came back from a really tough time. I think it's medal deserving, to be quite <laughs> honest with you, and a battle that not many people will go on to mm. come out the other side of. It's tough. It's really, really tough what you did. Mm. And you've gone on to study psychotherapy and counselling with an mm. emphasis on teens. So do you mm. think we should catch people earlier, if I can phrase it that way, and, yeah. and start that open conversation a bit earlier? Are we getting better at it, do you think? Uh, we're talking about it more. I don't know if we're getting better at it, you know, because, you know, there's an old saying, um, when, when all is... When all is said and done, there's a whole lot said, <laughs> very little done. Um, but no, we we are talking, we are talking a lot more about it. But we need to be, we need more action. We need more action on it. I I firmly believe it's it's easier to build strong children than than to fix broken adults. You know, uh, so if we can, um, maybe create the conditions in this country for young kids to become resilient, to become strong, and um. I'm all for that, you know. So that's why I, I agreed to take up the podcast because um, I think my story needs to be heard. You know, I go around to schools all over this country and I share my story. And every school, there hasn't been one talk or one school that I've been to where I haven't got kids who've reached out to me afterwards. You know, young teenagers or whatever just said, I'm living, you, you told my story. I'm living the same life as you. And thank you, you know, for, for opening up and, you know, you're after giving me food for thought and hope and, and, and this kind of stuff. And that's why I do it, because there's always somebody suffering in silence, you know. There's always somebody. Um, But even my guests, you know, I've sports stars, all stars, musicians, comedians, psychologists, therapists, personal trainers, coaches. And they all have a story of triumph over adversity. And they don't just talk about mental health. In my in in the talks in the guests in 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 our in our episodes they're talking about the actual process of getting help sitting down with therapists you know you'll hear people talking about mental health oh your mental health is real emotional health is real yeah sure all health is health is health but when you hear people saying oh, i was lost and i rang a therapist and it didn't work out for me so i rang another one this kind of stuff people mm, need to hear this yeah. because sometimes people have a bad experience with a therapist and they think oh that's not for me and I say, it's not, you know. Yeah, you're right. We do set the narrative that you have a dark time yeah. and then you fix it and then it's just happily ever yeah. after. And that's not necessarily no. the way it goes. The trajectory is not always up mm. and it can go back down again and back up and you can need help again. Yeah. And I think it's great that you're set telling those stories in, in Hooked on Health. Yeah. And you're getting back into the ring. You have a fight planned for yeah. later in the year I, I, and, a, and a wedding. So <laughs> how are you going to... You'll have to have the hands yeah. up to protect the face yeah, for yeah, the photos. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it's funny enough, you know, like Laura is my fiance and we've been, we've tried to get married twice already. Hopefully it's her time lucky. <laughs> but Laura's type of girl, she loves my boxing career. She loves the she loves this kind of new redemption journey that I'm on. And she even said, if you get a big fight, like a world title fight or a European title fight, we're cancelling the wedding. I don't care. She goes, because she just like she 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 knows we're going to get married. You know, we're going to get married. And that's the kind of attitude we have to it all. It is has been a bit of a mess and it has been a struggle because we were supposed to get married in Spain, July 2020, then April uh, 2021. Now we've had to give up on Spain and give up on our, our 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 plans for there, and we're getting married back home in October of this year. So all system, it's all going so well so far. Um, but yeah, I'm back in the ring in the fourth of September as well. I turned thirty six last week, so like, look, I'm it's not I'm not getting any younger. It is difficult. It's very hard, but I do believe that there is a big kind of a a big fight left in me, like a big kind of a, a night out. I want to go out with a bang, a, a European title fight or something uh, along those lines. And, but once my boxing career is over, I want to go back and get my degree. I have one more year left for my degree. I got a, I have a diploma in counseling psychotherapy, but I, I want to go back into that area because I'm passionate about that area. I love that area. And I, so many people have given me help and support and I want to give it back to others. And I just think as a country, we haven't got the best reputation when it comes to like speaking about this stuff and being open and honest, you know, um, women are much better at it than men but I'd like men to be a bit more open with it so when people see me a champion boxer speaking about these uh, very real emotions and raw honest um, and giving raw and open and honest talks then they feel a little bit like hey he can do that I can do that too you know so that's why I do it I love it I think Mm. you're a champion in Mm. all areas of life you will find Eric's podcast wherever you get yours it's called Hooked on Health continued success in all areas of your life thank you Eric Donovan, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Claire. Pleasure. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer this week, Simon Keane, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Music.